In modern Christianity, we have done somewhat of a disservice to what it means for a person to come to Christ. Now, here's what I mean by that. And this is true of, of preachers not only in the United States, but all around the world. And I'm sure at some point I've been guilty of the same thing. We have presented salvation as little more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's really how we have gone about evangelism. If you come to know Jesus, then eternity is secure for you and you have no worry of hell. Now, on the surface, and really even beneath the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. That is a biblical approach. We can present salvation that way. People can accept Jesus as a means of making sure that they go to heaven And they will. But boy, there's a lot more to it. When I present salvation, and it's been this way for a little over 20 years, I always say that there's five things that have to happen. Number one, you've probably heard me say this. Number one, we have to know who God is. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that God has made himself known through creation. Both his invisible attributes as well as those that are visible, they're known through creation. That's part of what Dini was just talking about. Did you smell the air last night? That's God's gift to us. He's letting us know who he is and that he's there. Now, Romans 1 verse 20 would tell us that God has done that, made himself known through all creation so that all men are without excuse. So we have to know who God is. Number two, we have to know who we are. We are a sinner separated from God. No question about that. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 would teach us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if I know who God is and I know who I am and I am separated from God because of my sin, then I have to figure out how this gap can get closed. That's called salvation. How am I going to do that? Well, that's going to happen through Jesus. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who closes that gap between us and the Lord because he deals with our sin. And it's because of Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that we believe or we teach that salvation is a get out of hell free card. And we actually hear the word free. The free gift of God is eternal life through His Son, Jesus. So that's where we get that. And the joy of it is, it's true. The Lord deals with our sin and changes our eternal destination when we trust our salvation to Him. God closes the gap, or Jesus closes the gap between us and God. Well, that leaves us then wondering about the other two. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter has just preached a powerful message at Pentecost, and a whole bunch of people from all over the region have heard him preach. This is the first evangelistic message after Jesus ascended into heaven, and man, did Peter ever bring it. He, he did. It was good preaching. It was in-your-face preaching. It's the kind of preaching that if he'd have had a pulpit in front of him, he'd have pounded that thing into the ground. It was good preaching. Convicted people right down to their souls. And afterwards, they said to him, what must we do to be saved? And this was Peter's response. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins. That's what he said. Just like that, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So Peter made it very plain. Well, that answers those last two of the five things. We have to repent of our sin. 
Repentance is taught not just in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, but it's taught other places in Scripture as well. If you have a Bible with you, open to Luke chapter 15 with me, verse 7. Dr. Luke records this. This is Luke 15, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Repentance is an interesting spiritual word. We know what confession is. We hear it all the time. People confess their wrongs. Within our relationship with Christ, people confess their sins. That means acknowledging that we have sinned. Well, repentance and confession are not the same thing. Confession is simply an acknowledgement. Repentance is a desire to stop what we just confessed. It's a desire to turn around and go the other way. That's what repentance is. I want to change directions in my life. I want to go the other way. So Peter in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 said, repent. Luke said, when a sinner chooses to do that, there's a massive celebration in heaven because somebody is choosing a different way of life. I don't want to live this way anymore because I know that every day that I do is one day further away from God. I want to close the gap. So we repent and Jesus gives us the power to do that. When we choose to trust Him with our life, not just our salvation, but our life, He gives us the power to do that. And then there's this issue of baptism in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Baptism is that place where we tell the Lord, I'm all in. I am all in. And Acts chapter 2 tells us exactly what that is. As Peter says, it's a necessary, essential part of us choosing to walk with Christ. But there are other places in Scripture that explain it for us. This is found in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's this wonderful, miraculous part of baptism where we choose to tell the Lord we're all in, and when we come out of the water of baptism, we walk in a new life, the newness of life, the Apostle Paul would say. So we put those five things together, and we get this full picture of what salvation is. Yet for some reason, we still present salvation solely as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Come to know who Jesus is? Change your eternal destination, make sure that you have no fear of hell, and you've got it. That's it. You now no longer have to worry about that. You get to go to heaven. And we can present salvation that way. And a lot of people will never know salvation is much more than that. But as a preacher, I would be remiss if I stopped there. If that's where I left you in this idea of salvation, that now because of Jesus, you can go to heaven. There is so much more for us in a walk with Christ than just this belief that we don't have to worry about eternal condemnation any longer. There is so much more. 
And we shouldn't leave that on the table solely because we're happy about heaven now. In fact, the Lord doesn't want us to. God wants us to dig deeply into a relationship and take everything from that relationship that we possibly can. And He wants us to desire everything in Him and from Him. And His desire is to give that to us so that we can know Him and know Him fully. There is so much more to salvation so much more to a relationship with Christ than solely the promise of heaven. Don't ever let anybody convince you that there isn't. There is so much more. So dig deep and find it because the Bible teaches us to do that very thing. The Bible teaches, God teaches us to dig as deep as we possibly can. When you grab that shovel and you start digging, it all begins with understanding the pattern of the cross as it relates to our ongoing relationship with Jesus. Now, here's what I mean by that. We have a lot of people that will believe that on the cross, Jesus conquered our sin and then He canceled the debt for our sin. And they believe that that's the pattern. Jesus conquered our sin and then he canceled the debt. Now, here's the problem with that pattern. If we believe that Jesus conquered our sin and then canceled the debt, most of us are going to believe that we have to come to a place where we are no longer struggling with sin so that we can receive salvation. You ever talk to anybody with that type of a mindset? I have to stop sinning before I can accept Jesus. Or worse, they believe this, I have to stop sinning before Jesus can accept me. Well, that is upside-down teaching in the pattern of the cross. Here's what I mean by that. When Jesus died on the cross, He canceled the debt for our sin. And then when we become a Christian, He conquers sin in our life by unleashing a power within us through His Spirit that helps us overcome sin. It is a reverse pattern. Jesus canceled the debt of your sin on the cross. And then when you make Him a part of your life and you give your life to Him and you say, I want you to be my Lord, then inside of you, because that's where He resides, this power is unleashed. It is unleashed within you so that you can go to war against sin. That's the way it works. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it is the other way because that becomes impossible for us. Without Jesus, you are never, ever going to conquer sin in your life. Not ever. But with Him, you will get into a process, an ongoing process of defeating sin in your life with no fear of death because Jesus conquered death and He canceled the debt so we don't have to worry about it. That's that free gift that Romans chapter 6, verse 23 lays out for us. So if we can embrace the right pattern that Jesus canceled debt and then helps me conquer sin, it changes our life. Literally changes our life and the way we live it. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have a Bible with you, open up so that you see this with your own eyes. 
We're going to go to the book of Philippians. We're in a study of that book, and we'll get to where I want us to be in just a few minutes, but let's make a quick stop first in chapter 1, verse 27. Once we understand that Jesus canceled our debt, and then he conquers our sin, the Apostle Paul says, verse 27, chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Wow. Listen again to how he starts. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word worthy is really quite an interesting one. In the original language, it would look like this. Here's the word for it, axios. Now, I'm sure you probably are not familiar with what axios means, so one commentator really helps us understand it. Look at the explanation. Axios, or worthy, has the root meaning of balancing the scales. What is on one side of the scale should be equal in weight to what is on the other side. By extension, the word came to be applied to anything that was expected to correspond to something else. A person worthy of his pay was one whose day's work corresponded to his day's wages. The believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called is one whose daily living corresponds to his high position as a child of God and fellow heir with Jesus Christ. His practical living matches his spiritual position. Now, that's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a value word. How much do you value the relationship that you have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Your life becomes a reflection of the value. Now, that's true of every relationship we have. How I treat my wife is a reflection of the value that I have in her, and vice versa. How she treats me is a reflection of the value that she sees within the relationship. How we work for our employers is a reflection of the value that we place on the relationship. You can apply it to anything at all that you want. This word axios or worthy is a value word. How do I value something? How do I value someone? My life reflects it. That's really what that means. So if we're going to live a life that communicates the value that we have with God through His Son, Jesus, then we have to ask what that looks like. And the Bible helps us figure that out as well. Now, just in, in regard to value, let's listen to this from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, that's Paul's way of saying, this is the value that I have and the way I want to reflect it. There are other places that he would capture it somewhat from the negative, like this in Galatians 
chapter 1, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Now, Paul was saying, I'm watching some people and I'm seeing that they're not capturing this idea of axios or living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're not walking in step with Him. There seems to be a stutter as they're making their way through life and it's visible in how they're living. They're not walking in step with Jesus. So flip that over, Paul's saying, I'm seeing people that aren't doing that. When we flip it over, we have to ask what that looks like. When a person is walking in step with Jesus, it means that they are doing everything that they can to embrace life with Him. They're doing everything that they can to reflect the value of the relationship and ultimately to reflect Him. That's walking in step with Jesus. I want my life to honor Him, to bring glory to Him. I want Him to be the ultimate purpose of everything that I do. That's what it means to walk in step with Jesus. Life is about Him. Now, I don't want to be redundant, but that commentator we looked at just a minute ago had a statement that really helps us understand that. This is it. Your daily living corresponds to your high position as a child of God. That's your high position. For some of us, the biggest struggle is understanding that high position because life has convinced us of the low position. We're not good enough. We're not worthy. There's no way God could love us. There's no way Jesus would die for me. All I can see is the low position. My sins are too big. My sins are too great. My debt is too immense. Well, the high position says, I am a redeemed child of God because of Jesus. Now I'm going to live like it. Now I'm going to live like it. And once we get there, we're walking in step with Him. I'm not going to let anybody else tear me down. I'm not going to let life beat me down. I'm not going to let anyone or anything convince me that I'm not a redeemed child of God. And so I will walk in step with Him. And that high position will be visible to everyone. That's what we're shooting for. Now that sounds kind of daunting. It really does. And there's a, a point where we want to think, well, it's just a whole lot easier if I can accept that Jesus died for me so that I don't have to worry about going to hell and I can stop there. Just give me my get out of hell free card. That's all I want. But there is so much more. Don't let the dauntingness of it keep you from exploring it. And now, once you figure out that pattern of the cross, then understand this, and this will help with the dauntingness of the whole thing. You were created for a purpose. You were created for a purpose. Now, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe the Bible because Scripture speaks so pointedly to it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 reads like this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were created for a purpose. Once again, Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were created for a purpose. You were created for a purpose. I'm going to say it again. You were created for a purpose. God created you for a purpose. The psalmist knew that. That's why in Psalm 139, verses 12 through 14, he would write these incredible words. I typically am reading and teaching out of the English Standard Version, but I want to switch to the message today because I like the way Eugene Peterson writes this. Take a look. Oh, yes, you shape me first inside then out. You form me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, your breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. Isn't that something? That's Psalm 139 from the message. That's how much you were created for a purpose. In your mother's womb, God was doing something. In your mother's womb, from conception to birth, God was developing you into the person that you would become. You were created for a purpose. You have a place in God's kingdom. Now that's value. That's how God values you. The question is, how do we value Him and the relationship that we have? Well, let's go back to Philippians chapter 2 now. This is where we're at in our study. You're thinking, oh no, he just got to where we're supposed to be. We're going to move pretty fast. Join me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I love the fact that the first word we're about to read is the word therefore. It really captures everything we've been talking about. Take everything that I've just said and, and then let's put it in this therefore. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Therefore, because of all of this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now that's what Paul would say about this whole idea. But in order to understand it, we have to correct some wrong thinking again, beginning with this. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses this expression, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we read that just rapidly and we don't stop to really consider what it says, we will believe that Paul is telling us to work out our salvation, that we are saved by works. 
Now, here's the problem with that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 teach something completely contrary to that. Listen to what is written there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You cannot work your way into salvation. Salvation is not by works. It is by grace, and it is through faith that we come into a saving relationship with Jesus. Works have nothing to do with it. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot live such a good life that God will look at you outside of His Son and grant salvation to you. That cannot happen. It does not work that way. We are saved only through Jesus. We are saved only through Jesus. Say it with me. We are saved only through Jesus. That's it. You cannot work your way into heaven. So why then would Paul say, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling? It seems like a contradiction. It isn't, because you have to remember who Paul was talking to. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not talking to the unsaved. He's talking to the saved. Not just the saved, he's talking to the saints. So when he says, work out your salvation, he's not telling them, work unto your salvation. He is telling them something else because he isn't talking to the unsaved. He's talking to the saved. So the contradiction falls off the page the minute you realize who he's talking to, which then should cause us to say, what's he really getting at then? Work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. Well, in the original languages, we know that what he's really saying is captured in this idea. Work to full completion your salvation. The term in the Greek language has at least three different meanings. The first one is mathematical. This is used in, in terms of a mathematical equation. Work it out to full completion. Those of you <clears throat> excuse me, with a mathematical mind know what that looks like. The equation is put in front of you and you have to find the solution. You have to work it all the way out to completion. So mathematically we can apply it. It also has a mining application for those that would be underground digging in a mine, meaning get all the ore out of this. Make sure you don't leave anything behind. Work it out to completion. It has an agricultural application as well for those that might be tilling up a field and planting a crop. This is a harvest term. Work it out to full completion. Get everything you can out of this crop out of your efforts. Work it all the way through to completion. Don't just plant the crop and then walk away. Don't just plant the crop and then expect it to do its own thing, but you don't have to go pick it. Don't just plant the crop and then expect that somebody else will do it for you. You work it out to full completion from start to finish. You stay in it. Work out your salvation to full completion. Your own salvation. It's personal. It's personal. 
move past the change of eternal destination into the depth of the relationship and mine it for everything. Mine it for everything. Get everything you can out of it. That's what God's telling you to do. God's saying, I have all of this available to you. I have all of this in front of you. Come and get it. It's here. Come and get it. You were created for a purpose. Come and get it. That's what he's saying. Don't leave it behind. Don't leave it on the table. Don't leave it in the mind. Don't leave it in the field. Come and get it. That's what God's telling us. Man, that's oh, ha, goosebumps. I like that. No matter how many times I preach something like this, I like that. Because there's always more. There's always more. That is the vastness of God. To not believe this shrinks who He is. To not believe that there is always more shrinks who He is. If you believe in the vastness of God, then you must, you must believe in the vastness of the relationship. Come and get it. That's what the Lord says. When you pick this up, I'll put more down. When you pick this up, I'll put more down. When you pick this up, I'll put more down. You see the pattern. If we're not careful, there's another pattern that we could fall into. One that disqualifies us from what we originally had hoped for the hope of heaven. Now again, don't believe me. Believe the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, has some really interesting teaching in it. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and listen, and disqualified regarding the faith. But they'll not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Disqualified from the faith. Man, you don't want to choose that path. Disqualified from the faith. So come and get everything God has to offer through His Son, Jesus. Come and get it. Start with the forgiveness of your sins, the canceling of the debt, and then understand the conquering that follows. Come and get it so that you walk closer to Jesus every day, learning more about Him, taking more of Him on, picking up more of what God has to offer all of the time, every day, every day, you come and get it because you don't want to be disqualified from the faith. Come and get it. And I'm not saying that if you get to a certain point and, and it stops there that you're disqualified. I'm not saying that. Don't, don't go to lunch today and say that Phil said that. I don't want the phone calls tomorrow. I'm just saying there's a whole bunch out there for you. Work it to full completion. 
Work it to full completion. And get everything that the Lord has for you. Your life will be better. The world will be better. You will continue it on even into eternity. And why wouldn't you want to? Come and get it. Come and get it. There are things that will try to stand in the way. Don't let them. Just don't let them. You choose Jesus every day. You choose the relationship that you have with him every day. And it's a choice. Let me illustrate it for you this way while the worship team comes up. Tina and I have been married in August, I believe, 33 years. 33? 32? 33? Somewhere in there. We'll talk about that over lunch. (laughs) We met when we were in college. When we first started dating one another, our lives were a little bit different. Like I said, we met in college. She was there on the academic plan. I was there on the experiential plan. That's that's a good way to put that. We always tell people that when we started dating, my grades went up and hers came down. We found good balance. We found good balance. There were other things about us that were different, things like organization. She was highly organized. I was a little looser with certain things like that. She had good plans all the time. She had everything in neat stacks and neat piles. When we got married, some of those differences were very apparent. You know how that works. There are apparent differences within marriage. We can choose to let those become conflicts, or we can choose to work our way through those differences. Some of you are thinking, what, what, what kind of differences are you talking about, Phil? Toilet paper rolls, up or down. You know, <laughs> silly, silly little things like that. And then there are bigger differences. For a lot of people, when they get married, they want the title of husband and wife. It's all they're interested in. They want just the title. And if all you want is the title of married, you have a husband, you have a wife, then a lot of conflict will follow because those differences are going to remain. They're going to stay there. But if you want something more than just the title and you want the relationship of marriage, then you will understand that you have to work through some of those differences until day by day, moment by moment, there is this blending of your lives into one, two lives into one. The Bible would teach us that within marriage, that's the ultimate goal. The two will become one flesh. It's this continual blending of lives into one. Well, God would use that same illustration for us that we might understand our relationship with Him. There is this continual blending of our life and His until we become a reflection of who He is. And the relationship is obvious to everyone. That's the goal. It's that blending so that we are reflecting who He is. But we will never blend our lives that way until we choose to work out to full completion our salvation, every one of us. So come and get it. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, thank you for the relationship that you made possible. One that not only closes the gap created by our sin, but creates for us an intimacy with you that we couldn't find without your son. So thank you for Jesus. But I'm also grateful for your vastness 
that you want us to know you more and more every day, that we might blend our lives to a point of reflecting you. Father, help us do that. Help us desire that. Help us pursue that. And I pray, Lord, that the impact will be global. The impact of people walking that close to you will change the world we live in. Right now, though, I'm praying for those that have not started that relationship. I pray they will. I'm also praying for those that have only taken a step or two into it. I pray they'll go all in. And Father, for those that have walked with you for a long time, when they have grown closer and closer to you every step of the way, I pray that you'll put new things down in front of them that they'll pick up that will blow their minds. And Father, do that for all of us, for all eternity, will you? In Jesus' name, amen.